You're listening to Wilderness Times, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and justice, brought to you by Resistance Church and Jubilee United Church in Toronto. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Wilderness Times for Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. My name is Brianne Swan, and in partnership with Norm Seeley, I am one of the called ministers at Jubilee United Church in Toronto. I also serve the Resistance Church community, one of Jubilee's digital ministries. This week, I'm sitting down with author and YouTuber Damon Garcia. Hailing from California, Damon is a Christian and a socialist. He creates and shares resources through videos and live streams to help people cultivate a spirituality oriented toward liberation in every area of their lives. This work is inspired by liberation theology, post-colonial studies, and anti-capitalist politics, and he uses these resources to help people unsettle and untangle the ways they've been deeply influenced by theologies developed in order to justify colonization. It is a work that also includes rebuilding and cultivating a spirituality influenced by theologies developed by colonized and marginalized people in order to empower their struggle for freedom. Damon has recently released The God Who Riots, Taking Back the Radical Jesus. It is published by Broadleaf Books, and all the relevant links to find Damon's book as well as his YouTube channel are available on our show notes at wildernesstimes.ca. We're going to hear more from Damon in just a minute, but first, here is Amori singing Raise a Voice, Hear it Echo. You can find links to Amori and her music by going to our show notes. Free fall. 
Raise a voice, hear it echo. Raise a voice, hear it echo. So thank you, Damon, for joining us on Wilderness Times. It's really great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So you just launched your first book, The God Who Riots. And if you had to, if you met someone in in an elevator and you had to give them the 30 second pitch, like how would you summarize your book? Oh, man. I'm not not actually going to time you, but. Right. But telling it to strangers is weird because 
it's like, I don't know where people are coming from. I don't know where people are at with these topics. And, and it's funny, I've, I've ran into multiple situations because my, my friends uh, here are really happy about the book. And so we'll be at a bar and they'll meet somebody and then bring me over and be like, this is my friend Damon. He wrote a book. They're just so proud, which is cool. But then the person asks, what's the book about? This person I do not know at all. And then I'll usually, my go-to is, uh, it's about religion and politics. And sometimes they're like, oh, like they don't want to talk about it. And then some people are like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. And then I would say it's about, um, well, the title, The God Who Riots, Taking Back the Radical Jesus. And what I talk about is acknowledging this history of oppression throughout Christian history and at the same time, talking about the stream throughout history of those who were empowered by their faith to fight for liberation. And we see in the story of Jesus, especially when it's read in its larger historical context, was also living out that kind of faith, trying to reclaim the radical roots of his faith, particularly by tapping into the Hebrew prophetic tradition. And it empowered him to critique and move against the ways that his faith had been compromised by empire after empire. And we find ourselves in a very similar situation today where we're trying to find a way to um, reclaim the radical roots of this thing in the face of so much compromise and colonial imperialist white supremacist Christianity like this. But this people have been here before. I think that's a big thing I want to share too. It's been it's been going before, so we have people to look to and be inspired by. Mm-hmm. And this isn't this hasn't always been the particular lens that you've looked at the Christ story through. Mm. The, yeah, so the title references when Jesus goes into the temple. It's time for Bible bites. Every week, our guests are asked to pick a piece of scripture that resonates with them, that they'd like to discuss. Now, normally, our Bible Bites segment occurs near the middle of our interview. However, this week, Damon and I were so eager to sink into this week's story, a greatest hits piece of scripture in liberative Christian circles, that there was little separating the discussion of scripture from the rest of the interview. And so, here is our Bible Bite read to you from just north of the Ontario Legislature by the Reverend Stephen Milton from Lawrence Park Community Church in Toronto. My name is Stephen Milton, and I'm reading from downtown Toronto, Ontario. I'm standing at the corner of Avenue Road and Bloor Street, just north of Queen's Park. I'm going to read a passage from the Gospel of John, where he expels the money changers. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, 
Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And flips tables and pours out coins and it's and then we know classic line is he says you've turned this place into a den of robbers and reading uh, historical Jesus studies and just seeing it from a bigger perspective something that really blew my mind was learning that a den of robbers is not where robbers or it's not where people are robbed but it's where robbers go and hide and So Jesus is accusing the religious authorities of his day of using their religion to hide and avoid the injustice going on everywhere, which is more relevant than ever because we all know Christians who do that. And Jesus is directly quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who also had a temple demonstration, and they try to kill him too after that, but he had got away and then died later. And and it's, it's even more clear of that description of a den of robbers in jeremiah where he says uh you you were you're doing all this injustice not taking care of the widows and the orphans and the foreigners again and again and then you come to the temple and say we are safe while still doing all this injustice and so you've turned this to to a den of robbers but i think yeah originally when i grew up with that hearing that story in sermons. I grew up in an evangelical Pentecostal church and that story was always described as like a spontaneous temper tantrum that Jesus had. And it was like he used just had to, a really bad day and he's like, I'm exactly. just done. I just can't even. Exactly. <laughs> and and then it was used to say, it's okay to be angry sometimes if it's like righteous anger. Here's a story of Jesus when he got too angry. But then you you realize, especially when you uh, have a deeper understanding of the temple system, he's intentionally flipping things over that would put a temporary hold on the activities of the temple so that people would pay attention to him. He's not just flipping whatever is in front of him. And so I think the yeah, the big it's it's so funny now, especially when you get more into this stuff, but just the simple turn of, Oh yeah, those who were in power in Jesus's day was the Roman Empire. That opens the whole thing wide open, and the, the gospels read differently, the teachings read differently, and it's just. Uh, I think that was the big shift that I just kept following, and so there's a lot of that in the book. For and so it's like there's a chunk of the book about Jesus's temple demonstration, and then um, most of the book is really talking about that that stream throughout history of oppression and that stream throughout Christian history of people fighting for liberation.
Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, I love that story. I, I, I used to be the minister of social and ecological justice in our denominational's regional structure. I loved preaching on that passage. And, and one of the things that I love about that passage is, is the differences that each of the gospels sort of pull out yeah. from it. And so, you know, by the time we get to John, um, like Jesus is, you mentioned it, Jesus is being very intentional about what exactly it is that he is flipping over. It's not indiscriminate, you know? And in in John, the animals that are mentioned are the, the people who are selling the cattle. And, um, you know, we've got the larger animals. But Mark, and for those of you who are listening who might not necessarily understand the order in which the Gospels are written, Mark is generally accepted to be the first Gospel um, to be written post uh, um, the temple's distru- second temple destruction. Um but Mark mentions the money changers and the doves. And that's always been so striking to me because who buys the doves? The absolute poorest and most vulnerable people that are attending the temple. And so it's like being angry at the whole system, but even more specifically to the people who are not only exploiting, but actually profiting and stuff. So you hear that story and you're like, your mind is is blown open and you have a story in the introduction of your book where you go to your leadership. Yeah. When, yeah, I was a, when I was in evangelical ministry in 27, well, um, I, I would say my theology definitely progressed outside of that denomination's theological boundaries years before that, probably around 2013, 2014. But I spent years desperately trying to synthesize things and thought I could change things from the inside up into the point where it was just absolutely impossible. I was about to get my pastoral license in 2017, or I was starting the process of it. And that process ends with an interview with a panel of pastors who ask you about your theology. And they give you the questions beforehand. So because they ask everyone the same ones. And so as I was looking at it, I knew I couldn't answer any of the questions honestly and pass. And so that's when I knew I had to leave. Like, it's it's done. And uh, I, but before I, I realized I needed to get out, as I was trying to change things from the inside, I had a meeting with two of the assistant pastors and said, I feel like every Sunday morning, I don't feel comfortable inviting young adults like me to the church. And that was a big problem because I was literally the young adults minister. Right. So this is my job. Literally your job. I was being paid to bring young adults. And so I was running this separate young adults group that would meet separately and able to talk about what we were interested in. And there's a there's so much that people were being woken up to in 2017 when we saw Trump's travel ban on Muslims, Black Lives Matter protests, women's marches, teacher strikes. And so it felt like this is a big waking up that we're all experiencing. And yet every Sunday we don't talk about any of that, almost like we pretend none of that exists. And so I was talking about this to the sister pastors and then one of them said, I don't think there's as many people thinking about that stuff as you think there is. And that's when I knew, okay, there's an absolute disconnect. I cannot talk about this well, with it, him. I, I got to get out of here. And I remember reading that thinking, how can they not be? <laughs> how can yeah. they not be thinking about it? But also what's interesting is he may have been 
more right than I was thinking at the time because later I thought about it more and realized it's, yeah, it's possible that a lot of the congregation members of that church weren't thinking about it, but it's because you created a culture where we don't talk about that. Right. And so it's like they're following, it's, it's not that it's frivolous to think about those things. It's that you created a culture where you discourage people from thinking, thinking about those things. But once they get out, I mean, this is a huge thing for people who like step away from fundamentalist Christianity and realize all the things that people are actually talking about and thinking about and caring about. That's a huge thing. And it's because of that restriction of um, so much in those types of churches. But, uh, but that, I mean, when I heard that, I also felt like there definitely is people thinking about all this stuff, talking about it and acting on it. And since I've left, I think that my journey has been finding more and more of those people where it's just so obvious. And it, and it, my time there where it couldn't be talked about or thought about seems more and more strange the further I get past that time in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when it's interesting when we surround ourselves with a certain group of people that think the same ideologically mm-hmm. as we do, then that feels very, very normal. I go to a, uh, I'm part of a Disciples of Christ Church now, by the way. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting seeing a lot of mainland Protestant churches totally be fine with talking about this stuff. But there's, there's uh, still some limits of how much they're willing to act in their mm-hmm. communities and stuff. But the on the nationalist thing, it's been so interesting to see how some, I, I know very right-wing Christians will use this story of Jesus in the temple and say, he's like us, just the way he was resisting against them. He's resisting, like we're resisting against the Democrats who are trying to rule us. And it's like... They're trying to cancel Jesus. Exactly. That's not even ironic. Lauren Boebert literally yeah. said that. And several preachers, um, they try to cancel Jesus, but you can't cancel God. And it's uh, it's, it's somebody, a popular conservative Christian author released a book this year also about Jesus in the temple, but just turned it a whole other direction. But I was going to say, what we often see is uh, conservative... When I, yeah, when I reactionary, when I when I'm referring to that, I'm specifically referring to those who desire to bring things back to how things this imagined past to how things used to be, and yeah, the and what we see with reactionary groups is that they adopt left wing or revolutionary radical ideas and positions or aesthetics and bastardize it and say well that's who we are like a big one is being against big government it's like oh yeah yeah we're right wing so that means we're against big government but they also want it to prohibit abortions and gay marriage and they would they clearly want a bigger government and then the other thing is being against rich elites it's like oh yeah we're, we're not for the rich elites but then vote for programs that tax the rich less and so it's, it's just all fake and weird, but it makes the conversation so much more difficult to get through with uh, that confusion. And so I think a big part of the book, too, was clearing that out, how Jesus was not just a rebel in general. 
or a, a guy who is trying to fight authority in general. I think a lot of people will present that. Rather, Jesus was resisting the injustice of his day in the name of the poor and oppressed. That's who he's on the side of. And and he embodies God being on the side of the oppressed, which we see throughout the Bible as Israel is crushed under empire after empire. And then what I also find interesting on the different gospels descriptions of this event and Matthew, Matthew adds that during this demonstration, sick people rushed into the temple and he started healing them, which I think is such a beautiful image. And then, um, yeah. And then Luke adds this connection of Jesus talking about how the temple will be destroyed with that connection and destruction of the temple in 70 AD or CE. But the, John, yeah, puts it in the front. It's like as time goes on, this story becomes more and more important to various Christian communities to the point where Jesus even adds more dialogue. John adds more dialogue. He adds that he's the one who adds the detail of pouring out coins and driving them out with a whip. Mm -hmm. It's like he's got to make this story spicier as it goes on. (laughs) So it's so interesting. Yeah, by the time we get to John, it feels much more directed at the specifically Jewish leadership, though. Yeah, that happens too. Um, but it's, yeah, so that definitely must be um, read carefully, especially with John, but also a bit of the other Gospels. Mm-hmm. But I also believe with... That's why historical with, context is so exactly. important. But also with Jesus, as he, I think it can easily be twisted that Jesus's protest was against Judaism or against the temple itself. And I think it's important to recognize that for Jesus and several Jews of the time, there was a clear difference between the temple as a symbol of Jewish faith and the temple as the compromised system by the Roman government. Like people don't realize people were making sacrifices to Caesar in that same temple. And they made it a place to where when you go, you bring your tithe and your taxes. It's just a nice thing where you can bring both at the same time. And that started under the Persian Empire. Like Babylon destroyed the the temple and then the Persian Empire realized like, oh, we can just, this we can use this as a system of control where people bring their tithe and their taxes and we um, get in close with the temple leaders and and help them profit off of it and then that continued to the greek empire and then the roman empire and so jesus is critiquing the way that his faith has been uh, compromised in the name of his faith and if he wanted to to protest against judaism itself or the sacrificial system itself it would have made sense for him to go further into the temple and flip things in there. But instead, he does it in the outer courts where people are buying and selling, where that compromise was most clear to everyone to see. Damon has a YouTube series where he breaks down and expands on some of the ideas and issues he's already brought up during this interview. Here's a brief segment where he talks about the idea of canceling Jesus. So I found out about this huge Christian PR campaign called He Gets Us, trying to save Christianity's image, I guess. And while I was researching it for a video, I came across this ad and was like, we've got to talk about this. Was Jesus canceled? 
To me, it sounds like, yo, remember that time you said a racist comment at school or that time you harassed someone at work or that time you posted a weirdly transphobic rant on Facebook? Yeah, and remember you got a whole lot of criticism for it and people decided that your values didn't align with theirs? Yeah, yeah, remember that? The same thing happened to Jesus. Jesus was canceled too. And the fact that this ad used pictures from Black Lives Matter protests is so ridiculous because protesters weren't canceled by cops. You see how weird that sounds? It's like you're using this buzzword canceled in a really weird way. Here's another funny example. So now here we are in another cycle of cancel culture, but this is nothing new. Cancel culture has been around since the beginning of time. King canceled Abel. I never in my life did I ever think I'd hear the sentence, Cain canceled Abel. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were thrown into the, uh, the fiery furnace. Everyone knows I love me some Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny, but using the word canceling here is weird, right? Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to cancel them, but there stood another in the midst of them, and he was as if the son of God. Yeah, and in the same way that God saved them from being canceled by Nebuchadnezzar, God wants to save you from being canceled by these Gen Z liberal SJWs, right? And then they tried to cancel Jesus, but you can't cancel God. Yeah. The, the, one of the big original ideas I had that turned into this book was I was at a prayer retreat for our church and we're having a few different conversations throughout the day. And I, I realized that when we have these conversations about contemplation and meditation and the inner life, it's great. And then we have these other conversations about action and justice and the outer work, but rarely do those conversations transition together smoothly. And we even use like totally different language for those two conversations. So I was thinking like, how can we connect those conversations? And one of the first things that came to mind was vulnerability and how in this inner life, we are trying to embrace the vulnerable parts of ourselves and discover that that is where God is to be found within us. And within society, we are embracing and looking to and being led by the vulnerable people in our communities. And we discover that is where God is to be found. Like Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these, you did to me. And so there is this special attention to the most vulnerable that we see Jesus embody, that we see it's several inspiring Christians throughout history embody. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, and so part of it is being able to conceptualize this better and realize that we don't have to separate our faith and our action. But then the other thing that I'm really hoping that churches get out of this book because I imagine some, some people may read this and realize like, yeah, we need to do something. We should do things and then start a program in their church, which I don't think is always the best idea, especially when you already have organizations in your city who have the programs and are doing the work. And sometimes it could cause more harm when a church just starts the program with no experience and thinks that they could take care of it with no expertise on what they're trying to help with in their community. But there are organizations in your town who are doing things like mutual aid, uh, helping 
there's a lot of renter strikes going on right now, especially with the housing crisis. And that's been extremely beautiful to see as people realizing how important it is and it, and how much a part of our faith it is to help people create these housing unions to fight for better treatment, creating unions at their jobs. Like that's been a big thing that's been happening with Starbucks lately. My friend uh, who works at Starbucks, they were the first one in like the county to decide to unionize. And I hear those stories and I feel like, yeah, that's, that's the work of God that we're doing. And so I think that's a big thing, like a special attention to um, what's already happening in your city and realizing that's what we're called to join. Mm-hmm. So there have been lots of other books about liberation <laughs> theology. You, you know, reference um, the folks that have written them. There have been lots of books about, you know, the the anti-oppressive calls that Christ makes. Mm-hmm. So what was the catalyst? Like, what was the impulse for you to write this particular book in this particular moment? Mm-hmm. I think a big thing for me was thinking of those who are looking for other perspectives outside of conservative Christianity or outside of pro-capitalist, liberal Christianity. And a a lot of people can get out of a restrictive religious environment, find themselves in a more free and open one and feel like I've arrived. Like, this is it. We're the most progressive in town. So we're good. Jesus is so lucky to have us. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And so a big thing I wanted to do is show people there's steps that you could go further on this stuff with a bigger perspective and other things we can focus on. And so... I was imagining those who are maybe uncomfortable within their Christian community or feel like things should be different, but I don't know exactly how to articulate that and giving them a way to articulate that and um, affirm that, yes, Jesus definitely was more radical than the people around you may have led you to believe. And so that was that was a, a big thing. So I think throughout the book, because it's funny, that the title of like, the God who writes in this temple demonstration. I don't get into that until like the last two chapters of the book. But what I felt like I was doing in the book when I was writing it is presenting people with a way of connecting their faith and justice in the most radical ways. Like I go through talking about colonialism and uh, decolonization, talking about um, anti-capitalist Christians, talking about, uh, Christians uh, talking about the work of abolishing the prison industrial complex reparations. And then, uh, and then the, that the was my favorite, those, that was my favorite chapter, by the way. Ooh, good. Yeah. And then the chapter before those last two chapters talking about Christians who became communists in Latin America. And then, and then I feel like, okay, now let's talk about Jesus in the temple. But by then I, what I think what I was trying to do was get people to, once we get there, you feel like, oh yeah, obviously this is Jesus is doing this. Like obviously Jesus is this radical who was crucified as a criminal uh, for being on the side of these this movement against the powerful. Who um, and so yeah, I try to give people a different framework throughout this book, and I try to write it in an accessible way because 
I know you and I have read a lot of books on these topics that are way too academic and wait and aren't as re- relevant, which is a kind of a weird word, but rather aren't talking about it in a more practical way. And so it's that that was the big thing for me, too, is I wanted to write this in a way that people who are even just barely exploring can also understand mm-hmm. this stuff. Has anybody come up to you after reading the book going, holy crap, I've never thought about it like that before? Yeah, which is really cool and it really, uh, yeah, it makes me happy and inspired and feels like, yes, that's what I was trying to do. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's such a, it feels so great to be able to be, to contribute to these voices that are talking about this and talking about justice and faith and be able to help more people kind of join that journey and that conversation and those actions who may not have before. So yeah, I'm proud of this book and happy about what it's doing so far. So if you had, I'm going to say one, but if you have two, like I'm not going to shut you down or anything, Mm -hmm. but if you had one wish for the church, like the global capital C church right now, what would it be? Uh, to have a more systemic view of injustice and to act on it. I love this. I'd, I'd mentioned in this book, the this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And then before I even say the quote, I, I say something like, I wish every Christian had this, understood this, and or had it like stamped in their brain. And he, he, it's from his um, talk that he gave called Beyond... Vietnam, and he's critiquing uh, militarism and capitalism, imperialism. And then he says, he mentions the Good Samaritan parable and says, we all know that we're called to be the Good Samaritan and help those who are beaten on life's roadside, but that should only be the initial act. And we should also restructure a society that keeps creating people who are beaten on the side of the road. Because we would be foolish to continually help people uh, who, who are in need and need of protection and charity, which is very important for us to do. But we would be foolish to think to not consider why do these people keep popping up? Why are there so many people that need help? Why are there so many people who do need charity? Why are there? And, and then he says a revolution of values is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It, it's about restructuring a society that produces beggars. And so I, th- I, th- I think a, a lot of churches are still very individualistic in the way that they frame things. And they don't consider the larger material causes for the injustice that we're fighting and how that is what needs to change. And the big thing about that is more like progressive or liberative versions of Christianity will remain fringe until those large systemic changes are made. Because when those, and some people think, well, we need to spread these good progressive ideas in order to make systemic change. But that's not what happens. I think it requires less people than we may think. And once we make that large material change, it opens up space for people to finally think differently and to even consider 
a different framing of God. Like we see with uh, the abolition of chattel slavery, how most white Christians were pro-slavery. And there's plenty that weren't, and there's denominational splits over it. But it was after the abolition of slavery that they started to consider. And what we see often happen is, as people are fighting for change, people will say, you're fighting against God because God set things up this way. Then after the change, it's like, this was part of God's plan all along. Right. Of course. <laughs> and so I think that's a big thing I'm trying to communicate in the book too, is that importance of transforming the material conditions, which changes our ideas. There's definitely a chunk of the book that I feel like I'm, I'm, it's almost like a water hose of historic Christian violence. It's called uh, white Christianity all the way down. But, and even while writing it, I remember thinking a Christian reading like just this part and thinking, damn, Damon really hates Christianity. <laughs> and so, it, but if you're reading at a very surfacey level, but it's like, I, I felt like, no, we need to be honest about this history, fully honest in order to, and, and when we could look throughout history and see the, like, for example, talk a lot about how Christianity is responsible for the development of the ideology of white supremacy and how initially colonization was justified through this split of Christians and pagans because pagans didn't have the same rights as Christians. So we were justified in exploiting them and killing them. And as those who were exploited, black and indigenous people started converting to Christianity, they needed a new justification, which then turned into, okay, all of us various European cultures, we're all going to mesh together and call ourselves white. And then all these other cultures, we're going to mesh them together and call themselves black. And so being, and so for me, I think some people may think, oh, so you hate Christianity because it's responsible for white supremacy. But instead I'm saying, if we can, learn and understand the beginnings of these oppressive theological developments than we can imagine and envision their end. Thanks so much, Damon, for being on the show. It was really great to have you. And of course. Thank you so much for having me. Your ground. Raise up your fears.
That was Dreamlamp, and their song Stand Our Ground from their 2021 album Electrified. You can find the links to Dreamlamp's music by going to our show notes. Wilderness Times and Resistance Church are part of the digital ministry of Jubilee United Church. We are committed to continuing offering opportunities for spiritual engagement in digital spaces in the long term, but we need your help. Please consider a donation as an investment in this ministry. You can find our donations page by going to wildernesstimes.ca donate. From there, you can choose Wilderness Times from the drop-down menu. Whether you donate once or sign up for a monthly contribution, we are very, very grateful for your support. The Man from the Desert On the Money Changers From Jesus, Son of Man by Khalil Gibran. I was a stranger in Jerusalem. I had come to the holy city to behold the great temple and to sacrifice upon the altar, for my wife had given twin sons to my tribe. And after I had made my offering, I stood in the portico of the temple looking down upon the money changers and those who sold the doves for sacrifice and listening to the great noise in the court. And as I stood there came of a sudden a man into the midst of the money changers and those who sold the doves. He was a man of majesty and he came swiftly. In his hand he held a rope of goat's hide, and he began to overturn the tables of the money changers and to beat the peddlers of birds with the rope. And I heard him saying with a loud voice, Render these birds unto the sky which is their nest. Men and women fled from before his face, and he moved amongst them as the whirling wind moves on the sad hills. All this came to pass in but a moment, and then the court of the temple was emptied of the money changers. Only the man stood there alone, and his followers stood at a distance. Then I turned my face and I saw another man in the portico of the temple, and I walked towards him and said, Sir, who is this man who stands alone even like another temple? And he answered me, This is Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet who has appeared of late in Galilee. Here in Jerusalem, all men hate him. And I said, My heart was strong enough to be with his whip, and yielding enough to be at his feet. And Jesus turned towards his followers who were awaiting him. But before he reached them, three of the temple doves flew back, and one alighted upon his left shoulder, and the other two at his feet. And he touched each one tenderly, 
Then he walked on, and there were leagues in every step of his steps. Now tell me, what power had he to attack and disperse hundreds of men and women without opposition? I was told that they all hate him, yet no one stood before him on that day. Had he plucked out the fangs of hate on his way to the court of the temple? Thank you so much for being with us this week, and a special thank you to Damon Garcia for joining me in conversation. A reminder that you can find the links to purchase Damon's book, as well as his YouTube channel, by going to our show notes at www.wildernesstimes.ca. We'll be back next week with Carrie Blankiger, author and investigative reporter for The Marshall Project an online news agency that covers the American criminal justice system. But until then, take care of yourselves and each other in these wilderness times. We'll see you soon. Wilderness Times and Resistance Church are ministries of Jubilee United Church, which is an affirming ministry of the United Church of Canada. You can find links to Jubilee, Resistance Church, as well as a full transcript of this episode by going to our show notes at wildernesstimes.ca.